give up the pussy and you can start talking shit. Welcome to the Mouthpiece, episode 20, year one. Today, we're going to talk about my week that was, and we're going to have a special guest, my idol growing up, baseball legend, Mr. Oral Hershiser, talking baseball playoffs, along with your phone calls and anything else you want to talk about this week on the Mouthpiece. Better late than never. Uh, this week's mouthpiece uh, coming up a little bit late. Uh, uh, the reason why is because of, well, my sickness taking over, I guess you could say. Uh, started off last week. Uh, we went to the uh, movie uh, premiere screening of Seven Days to Vegas with uh, Vince Van Patten. Uh, this is a great poker movie. If uh, you haven't seen it yet, I think you should definitely go rent it on uh, DVD, Blu-ray. Uh, check it out. I'm not sure what movie theaters it's still in. Uh, it is a really great poker movie. Very enjoyable. Great plot twist. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. So uh, we started off uh, last Tuesday with that. Uh, I went into Wednesday, uh, got invited to a uh, private poker game. It was supposed to be a quarter fifty hundred. It ended up being, uh, or fifty hundred hundred. It ended up being a quarter fifty with a hundred ante. Uh, so I played on my own. I won eleven thousand eight hundred. So that was. A good day and a good week, and everything seemed to be leading into a very great week uh, going into Thursday. Um, then I got invited to play in the game again, and the game was not near as good as it was on Wednesday. It was, it was actually kind of tough. Um, I didn't catch that many cards even though I felt like I might have even played better Wednesday than I did, or Thursday than I did Wednesday, I was really card dead and I was getting frustrated. Uh, but, you know, I don't really, I don't tilt or nothing, but we ended up uh, the game breaking with me down around 8,000. And, uh, which is no big deal. I won the 11,600 the day before. So uh, everything would have been good. And then after doing everything right for the last two and a half years and making zero mistakes, I um, I, I slipped a little bit. Uh, we started doing a few flips, which uh, started off good, but then ended up, I don't even know, losing like 12,000 straight and flips after being up like six. So now I found myself down about 14,000 for the day. And uh, Helmuth came down. Uh, he was doing flips with us. And uh, I was getting ready to quit. And I said, Phil, you want, let's play some uh, old school Chinese uh, for like a hundred a point. Now, 
old school Chinese, a hundred a point plays really small. Like you probably win or lose, I don't know, 400 a hand, maybe 600 a hand. And, uh, there's royalties and the royalties go back and forth. And the most you're ever going to lose is 10,000. Usually if you run extremely bad, um, Phil Helmuth found a way to hit about 40 royalties to my two and literally at a hundred a point in beats me for like 16,000 playing Chinese. Now, the reason why I say I let my guard down and I screwed up is I had not played any Chinese in two years and to be even doing flips, in in my bankroll situation is just not what I should be doing. And uh, it started off harmlessly. It led into me and Phil playing Chinese till about, and I told them, I said, no matter what happens, we are quitting at 3 a.m. because you know back in the old days, we'd start playing Chinese and not, n neither of us would ever quit. And we'd end up playing two days straight. Well, Phil ends up playing till nine in the morning. Uh, Cantu came in around four in the morning, in which we started playing open face, three-handed, uh, at 50 a point. Now, open face, three hand, it plays way bigger than, than the 100 a point regular Chinese. And I... Uh, I started off, uh, won a few hands, and then I went three hours, three hours playing open face, three-handed, without ever getting into fantasy land. Why they must have got there thirty times, and the next thing you know, I was twenty-six thousand loser at fifty a point, which is like five hundred and twenty points. And I looked up, and I'm like. 37,000 loser for the session. Now, you know, I've talked about it many times. I've worked hard to put my bankroll where I start winning and start paying off everybody I owe. And I, I have paid a lot, but I am trying to be conservative and not make mistakes. And then I go and I make this mistake. I end up playing all night and day with Bran until like midnight the following night. So you're talking about a, oh, a 33-hour poker session in which I end up losing a total of 34,000. So I was like 36,000 loser about 5 a.m. I had grinded back to where like 17. And then Brandon goes on a 16K rush in 20 minutes. So it took me like six hours to grind back 17. Uh, Brandon hit like a one-outer when I was in fantasy to get back, to get him to fantasy. And he beats me for 200 and a hand. I'm in fantasy. Then he stayed like four hands in a row. And the rest was kind of history. Uh, but forget the outcomes. I made a mistake. I know what my mistake was. Um, uh, winning 12 the day before, losing 34. You know, I lost 22 in the in the period. I'm not happy about it. I won't make the mistake again. I mean, I I guarantee you, I will not let my guard down in 
it's really weird. It's easy when you're winning and your bankroll is building up and you start to feel invincible and you say, yeah, 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 let's play some Chinese. I'm running good or I'll do that. And, and then you let your guard down. And, and I did that and I know better. You know, my mistakes in life, A, sports betting, B, Chinese poker, C, playing long sessions. What did I do? I did two of the three things that I have told myself not to do. So, you know, I, 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 I wasn't upset that I lost. I was upset that I let myself down. Um, it's something that I'm really working hard on becoming a better person not playing the long hours, not just not making mistakes. So, you know, uh, that happened. And, uh, then, uh, lo and behold, I was in severe pain the last three days. Uh, and I, I wasn't, I, it, I don't think it was because of the long session because the pain started, um, a week ago, Friday. So almost 10 days ago, I started going into spasms again, I hadn't had spasms in since I had the spinal cord stimulator put in. And so I'm like, what the fuck is this? What the fuck is it? So I had spasms on uh, like a, fr- a week ago Friday and then at my friend's wedding on um, Sunday. And we're going to get to that in a second. And so then uh, then I play. I had no pain on the Wednesday playing and no pain on the Thursday, Friday long session, but I've been in like severe spasms Saturday, Sunday, and even when I woke up today. So uh, I'm sure it had some kind of uh, effect on it. You know, um, at the wedding, I, w- I drank a little bit. Uh, I want to congratulate my friends Stu and Annie for getting married uh, on Sunday. Uh, that was a pretty good wedding. Uh, and I tried to have some drinks, which again, I shouldn't do because alcohol inflames my injury and causes pain. And then I wanted to dance a little bit because I wanted to be normal. And unfortunately having two drinks and dancing a little bit led me into a severe spasm. And I'm, I really think that possibly even doing that has caused the spasms I had this week. Let's hope not. One of the funniest things of, of, of I, had, I just had to bring up of my friend's wedding last Sunday is uh, <laughs> is uh, uh, when uh, they got married and, and they had handed uh, the ring to the maid of honor, uh, which was Annie's daughter. Uh, she um, It didn't really fit on her pinky finger and somehow she flipped her hand and the ring went flying and nobody could find it and it went into the water the murky waters of like a golf course lake. Uh, the, it was a $40,000 ring and nobody could find it for hours and nobody knew about it. And of course they had to hide it from Annie because Annie would have gone crazy. And we were trying to figure out why everybody was outside trying to, and we thought they were outside taking pictures, but they were all outside looking in the lake for the ring. And lo and behold, three hours later, uh, this little kid walks in with the, with this ring and puts it on Annie's finger. And I had no idea why. And they found out, I found out later why that, the, that this kid was searching for hours for the ring. Uh, just another day in the life of my good friend, Annie Lepage. Uh, what a week it was. So 
that's what happened this week. It's an interesting week. Uh, my pick of the week uh, went down in flames. My second pick of the week also went down in flames. So I'm now one in three on my one pick that I give out every week on the show. Uh, I tweeted out my pick of the week this week, which was Arizona. Um, my actual 10 to our pick of the week was Thursday uh, when I took Philadelphia and I won that. Um, I put Arizona out uh, plus five and a half at home as a home dog. I, it's really as stupid as it sounds. I, on Thursday, because I wanted to put Philadelphia in, I had to like pick the 10 games on my, in my contest, put them in, and then you could change them before Sunday. Hi, Flash. How you doing, little kitty? And uh, I look back at my all my original picks. I would have gone eight and two, and I would have won the contest. <laughs> but instead, I changed up things, listening to too many people. And it's okay to listen to people uh, that I that I watch and I I think are really good handicappers. But it's another thing when I have a different opinion on them. Uh, every other week. I agreed with their picks. This week, I kind of didn't, except for Arizona a little bit. And uh, they were all in on Arizona as their top pick. Uh, so I went with it, and I changed it up. I liked the Giants originally. I changed to Washington because of what I heard from them, saying people are overreacting to the new quarterbacks comeback win and they're losing Saquon Barkley, their best player, which made a lot of sense and their best receiver was out. Uh, so much for that. Uh, Case Keenum was awful. I think they made a mistake though, changing quarterbacks and going, I mean, it's so obvious Dwayne Haskins isn't ready. He was 10 times worse. So the Redskins are a major problem and I don't, see the coach holding on much longer so with that said the baseball playoffs are upon us um they are starting on wednesday and our up-and-coming guest is a, a a gentleman who i never in a million years thought i would ever meet let alone become pretty good friends with as I idolized him growing up, being a young kid and a Dodger fan growing up, um, Oral Hershiser was a guy that literally was my baseball idol. So uh, when I first met him about eight years ago, he let me wear his Dodger championship ring. It was probably the highest highlight of my life. And uh, getting to know him and as a great poker player that he's become, uh, I really enjoy his friendship. So I just want you all to know I will be playing on Poker After Dark tomorrow. If you don't have a Poker Go subscription, you can download Poker Go, put in the promo code MOUTH, and you will get $10 off a yearly subscription. That's promo code mouth at Poker Go. You can watch me play. Tomorrow, I'll be playing 400, 800 mixed games. Uh, I'm not a big fan of showing people how good I am at mixed games, but uh, 
unfortunately, uh, it's a one-day thing. It's a big game, uh, and I uh, I let Phil haul me half of me again because that's just what I do. So, um, with that said, we are going to bring on my idol in baseball and a very, very Dodger great, Oral Hershiser, to talk about the upcoming playoffs, the chances of our Dodgers winning it all this year, and what he thinks of the rules changes and everything else. So with further ado, we'll be right back here on The Mouthpiece. The Mouthpiece. If you'd like to take part in our phone call segment, you can give us a call at 702-329-0480. And if you're a snowflake or a pussy and you don't want to talk to me, you can email me at mouthpiecepodcast at gmail.com. Also, follow me at the Mouth Mattiso on Twitter for times that our call-in segment will be live. Okay, it's time for our favorite segment of the week. Our phone call segments to hear what our listeners have to say. So everyone, let's light up the phone lines. Yo, welcome to the mouthpiece. This is Mike. Mike, how are you? It's Mike in Toronto. How are you doing, man? Mike, what's going on, buddy? I've been I've been watching back old World Series made events and mm-hmm. just going through YouTube and watching the old ones. Mm-hmm. And of course, I came across 2005. And mm-hmm. I've watched the whole thing the whole way through. Mm-hmm. And obviously, the two biggest things um, for you are mm-hmm. the making the final table mm-hmm. and the god awful beat Scott Lazar put on you. Yeah. So, along with that, I want to ask you about that and what you remember about you know the whole experience. But just how the game has changed so much since then. Like I'm watching this, and, and I'm watching the things that like guys like Aaron Cantor and Andy Black, and Andy Black's still playing. I looked up his head and mouth. He's still going strong. Yeah, he's going But good. just the things that these guys were doing back then where it's like 4X rays, 10X re-rays, um, 50 big blind shove. It was unbelievable well, how here, they were here, back then. Here's the thing that has changed. Now, it poker's come full circle, okay? The only difference between... 2005 and 2019 is the game used to be played pre-flop and now it's played post-flop. Other than okay. that, it's it's nothing's really changed. Uh, in 2005, before card runners taught bet sizing, which was the thing you could never give out in poker, you could give out anything else you want. Just never give out bet sizing because. I used to know what people's whole cards were by the way they bet. And the, and mm-hmm. and so that's what made me so great at reading people. Now, I still pick up tremendous uh, situations of tells on people. If you look hard enough, everybody gives something away. And when, I always look to find the most aggressive players and just mm-hmm. focus on them. Uh, and which I did in 2001 with Carlos, which is why I, it was so sick that I gave the World Series away because I, I had a tell on him. So he was the most aggressive player, so I didn't really need to focus on anybody else. And when I made the fold after he five bet me with Queen Eight Offsuit, I, <laughs> you know, I just could never, I couldn't let 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 myself live it down. But um, 
Yeah, you know, going into the 2005 main event final table, you know, everybody's like, you're going to win the World Series, you're going to win the World Series, you know. And I never once thought about winning the World Series. All I thought about was one hand at a time, one hour at a time. When I, you know, that's all I kept telling myself. And uh, once I made the final table and I was the favorite to win, uh, I it's amazing. I'm surprised ESPN never aired this clip, but I told them in the interview before it started, I said, as long as I don't pick up kings against aces against one of these clowns, I, I go, I will win. And it took all of two hands off the deck for me to pick up kings versus aces. Now, even when it happened, I, I, if you, I was very fine, very content. I had already counted out the chips and uh, was moving on. And I was mentally, uh, I was mentally focused. Uh, I, 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 I what didn't even bo wasn't bothering me, and then the king hit the flop, and when the king hit the flop, I kind I'm an emotional person. I went crazy, and uh, that was, when the king hit the flop, I that was the first time in my life I said to myself, I'm gonna win the main the World Series because I was gonna have 75 percent of the chips eight handed, and there's just I was the best player. It was just I wasn't yeah. gonna lose. And uh, then when that heart hit the turn, and if you watch that video, I, I you're I, just I, like, oh, you, you knew I just it knew coming. it because because I just I, I knew how I, I've always ran in poker. Uh, most of my uh, my success was on attacking weaknesses and uh, picking up tons and tons of dead money without really having to play po as much post flop, and so. Uh, when that heart came, I just ran to the corner with my best friend. I'm like, please tell me what happens. Please tell. And he and the, and if you hear, if you listen closely, it's pretty funny. He he says, you. I thought he says you got it, but he said he got it. And yeah. you, you hear me say to my friend Matt, "What do you what do you say? He I got it. Yeah. When and you see me like the, my reaction. Now I go back to the table. And I go back to work and I start robbing them left and right and get real aggressive, yep. build my build stack back up. back up to five million. And then comes the Danim in hand where I picked them off of a bluff with the two tens. And yeah. I said, you don't got nothing. I go, you got like ace jack. And I, he had yeah. a big tell. And, and so then I called him. I said, I know you don't. And then I, you know, I didn't even, I'm still whatever favorite and, then I, I'm I, I thinking he's just dead to two overs and I I didn't did realize. Did you have a tell on Danaman or yeah, big tell? I had a big tell on Danaman and I had a big tell on um, who else? There was one other person on the table I forgot, uh, but I knew that Andy Danaman. Black and I knew Andy Black and um, uh, the guy who won from Australia were the uh, were the two best Hashem. players. Ha yeah, Joe Hashem because me and Joe had played yeah. a lot of hours together and the one thing about joe he understood was to stay out of my way i stood and i st stayed out of his way so uh you know we, we we and same with andy black you know it's like back then it was it was a thing of as long as you're not greedy and picking up all the pots we you're trying to stay out of each, everybody's way and you kind of move up the ladder and uh then all of a sudden so many of the new breed come in and says oh you're the it's the right way is to attack the big stack. Well, that lasted for about two years. No, oh they don't. God, yeah. They don't do that now. Uh, back in two thousand eleven, the euros were four betting and five betting. Yeah, all the time that was two thousand eleven when Joseph Chong handed John Raisner one point seven million on a platter. You know, and uh, that was their thing. Uh, 
he you know by him five betting he's putting uh what's his name to the test uh the guy from canada i'm so bad with names uh the guy who won the, the world series uh, Duhamel, yeah yeah and Duhamel, and uh and that's just uh I mean, it's really not an easy call with two queens when a guy five bets you three handed and the other guy's short, you know. But uh, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it, whatever. It is what it is. Uh, but I, I, I th- yeah. th- th- they don't do that now. If you know, if you notice, none of them oh, guys no. are attacking them. Like I, wanna... I, was, I was watching some of the stuff from 05, and I was like, and I'm, I'm thinking, like I've been. Um, going through a lot of Jonathan Little videos like like you have recently. It's a good person to go and, through. He's really, he's a oh, he's, great he's, guy. His stuff's fantastic. My fantastic. cash game has been so much better yeah. since I, I went yeah. through his uh, cash game masterclass. It's terrific. Oh, and it, range, range analysis and, and, and GTO play is, is fantastic right. as a basis, but obviously if you don't take into consideration, you know, game flow and, and your opponent's styles and right. and, uh, and ICM and stuff, like you're, you're not taking everything into consideration. If you're just yeah. basing it strictly on on just range analysis, and then that's that's it. That's all you go with. Yeah, you're just limiting what and, you can do. And that's where where Jonathan said on my show we talked about. He's you know I said well, you know uh, this is what I do to exploit those players. And he and and I said how do you combat that? You know what I'm saying? And there really is no answer to that. And I I know how to exploit a uh, GTO ICM player. It's it's pretty easy actually. You know, you just you just do you 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 re-raise a a completely different amount than they're used to or whatever you do differently than what most people do. So, if you do a if your style tra- changes differently than what most GTO ICM players are used to seeing, they they actually don't know how to react to it, and 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 like I said, if you heard that podcast, we talked about you know how people used to open for two X, and it was always correct to defend in the big blind with any two cards, and now now the good players have realized that, and they they're opening three three point five X, where it's not correct. God, to call we're going them. back to two thousand five. Well, because you're playing so deep, <laughs> that's the thing. And and, yeah. and and a lot of players have not adjusted and they're they're defending the big blind with, where they're not supposed to. And that is uh, uh, a, a lot of the things that uh, uh, the good players have adjusted to. And, and you heard that podcast review. And if you want, you can go back oh, yeah. and listen to it. It's, it to me, I, I've had some great podcasts, some great guests. And uh, the one with Jonathan Little, I never thought it would be was I thought my best podcast I had because I learned a lot, you know what I'm saying? And I oh, yeah. am not a GTO ICM player, but I'm learning it not to put it into my game. I'm learning it so I know what everyone else is doing. Because you, you, if you read as well as I do or Phil Helmut does or Daniel does, I yeah. just don't think it's, you don't need to put it. Now, Daniel's put it into his game. Uh, but it, it a lot, which has helped him in ways. But he he's still one of the best readers in poker, and and uh, I mean that's why I have so much respect for Brent Kenny. I mean, he, when you bring up GTO ICM, he laughs like, "Fuck no, I just play by feel, and that's what I do," you know. So yeah. it's uh, cool, cool. real easy to play, you know, like that. So, anyways, we got. I got to go. I got another uh, call. I appreciate the call, Mike. It's good to hear from you. Thanks, buddy. And uh, we'll keep Ditto. in touch, man. Tell all your friends listen to the show. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Hope to see you at the night's game in October when I'm there. You got it, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye.
Cheers. Bye. Yo, welcome to the mouthpiece. This is Mike. What's up, Mike? How you doing tonight? Good. Who's who's this? My name's Todd. Calling from Tampa, Florida. Hey, Todd. How's it going, man? Anyway, I was calling, man, to uh, tell you, Mike, I've been watching your sessions lately. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, I've been playing poker now for about 20, 25 years. Right. I'm, I'm 45. I, I started young, and, and I followed your career. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the question I wanted to ask you, I can see a, a – big difference in your game i've never played with you live or anything like that but i like i said i followed you on tv and right. stuff like that and, 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 and but the thing that that i could identify with you previously was you know and i've heard you explain it the blow up yeah you know you no, those are during gone. a session absolutely i mean and, and now recently man mm-hmm. dude i mean <laughs> There's been no blow up. Well, I mean the discipline. Yeah, I mean, and I gotta commend you, man. You, you, you're playing good cards, man, and it's showing. And, yeah, and I just wanted to, 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 to. I mean, what are you doing differently, man? That's well, I did you're, you're, on live at the bike. I, I had a, a kind of a brain fart and end up giving away thirty five thousand. I've seen that. Yeah, I've seen that. And, but but that was, you know, I, I've explained it a little bit. Is 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 I really felt on the turn that uh when he made a big bet uh garrett right. that he had a set and i what did you put him on pre-flop but when he, well when he i put him on tens or jacks okay okay and all right so i that's why i hated the flop so i that's why i come off the lead and check called the flop yeah that was a terrible right. flop for Ace right or King. right yeah. of course and I right. almost, honest to God, I swear on my life, I almost just check-folded the flop, right? I, my gut, you know, you have to follow your instincts. And my instincts told me to check-fold the flop. Uh, when I check-called the flop, which I didn't like because my instincts told me to fold, and he bet 10 on the turn and it was a king, I knew right. that, that Garrett knew I had aces or kings. Okay, I knew that he knew that. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I decided, which was dumb, okay, that I'm going to play, try and play above the rim here and rep three kings. Now, I am 1000% sure that if he didn't have a straight, he's going to fold a set to me when I check raise the kings. When he moves all in, uh, I had already now put in that extra 20,000. I'm like, well, now I'm just committed. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and exactly. and yeah. he, if you hear him, he says, run it once because he was convinced I had three Kings. You see what I'm trying to say? When he's, uh-huh, he yeah, doesn't, yeah. you know, he, he doesn't think I have a one pair hand or he's not going to say run it once. You know what I'm saying? He has a straight and he doesn't want to run it twice. With like, he, he knows him. So, so my thought process of thinking above the rim was correct because he thought I had three Kings. I mean, he told you basically afterwards he, that he thought I had three Kings, which was right, right. what I just, basically I just should have followed my gut on the flop, folded it there. When the King rolled off, I was folding and then I decided I'm going to get cute and rep three kings, knowing I know Garrett and my image. My image is 
I just don't put big chips in without it. And, uh, and so that's what happened in that hand. So it looks is yes. I, did I play it? Absolutely horrific. Yes. I should have made it 8,000 to 10,000 pre because we were both way too deep. So I misplayed it on pre-flop. I misplayed it on the flop and I misplayed it on the turn. And when it happened, what did I say? I, I rebought and said, Hey, probably the best thing that could happen to me now i'll put my head down and and what did i do i i i got it all back at 140,000. Yeah. but nobody talks right, about right. that because twitter is a negative world and the poker world they want to just bash you for when you make mistakes and like i told oh, garrett yeah. at, at the time i said you know i don't even mind that i lost i said but i'm gonna just be punished on social media how poorly i played the hand and garrett like garrett said to me he says who gives a fuck what they think? Everybody makes mistakes. Exactly. And, he, and he's right. Yeah, so, but uh, overall, you got rewarded anyway for, right, the, for right. playing good poker in the long yeah. run. You yeah, know yeah. I mean? and I play, if you watched all the shows I've been on, I have been the best player in the game in every show or the second best player. I mean, I've been playing great. Oh, without a doubt. So, Absolutely. And I know yeah, it. And I, even, I agree. I agree. Like, even the I hand agree. against Cantu, right? I have... A tell on Cantu. You're and, a little, you're a little, little, little like I hate not seeing you be able to pull the trigger though, man. But yeah. you know that's just you know playing, well, that's a, what, playing a little aggressive tight, I would think. Yeah, but I pulled the trigger on Cantu because I have a oh, tell yeah, on. Oh yeah, that was sweet. You know, yeah, yeah, and yeah, and yeah. that's when Phil went crazy thinking I'm giving away my money, and I'm like, Phil, you you just don't understand. I had to, I have something on him, you know. So instead of him, instead of People rewarding me for how great I played. You have Phil ripping on me. You have Sean Deeb saying, oh, that's why these two are broke all the time. You stay broke, you know. But I'm telling you from the bottom of on my, on my life, I, have a, I knew Cantu had nothing. I actually thought he had like eight, nine, or at best like nine, ten. You know what I'm saying? Uh, uh-huh. I just didn't even think he had that. I didn't even think he had. I knew he had nothing, and so right. I uh, I pulled the trigger, you know, and I picked up eighteen thousand. Yeah, yeah. You know, the old Mike would have checked and probably folded, you know, with one to come if I thought he, you know, I'm not getting the right price to call. So uh, gotcha. I was real proud of myself for going with my gut there, and even yeah. the, the the aces hand, I was right. I he would have folded a set. You know, it just, he just so happened to have six, seven, and a straight. So uh, yeah. it's all good, man. I, you know, that's it. You seem like you're in a good place in your life, man, and uh, I'm gonna be pulling for you. Yeah, man. I, I, I am. I'm in a, I'm in the best place I've been in maybe in my whole life. So hopefully, I'll stay there. Good, Mike. I appreciate right, the best call, of man. Luck to you, man. Thank good you. Good luck on the podcast. You got to tell all your friends to listen. All Take right. care. Bye bye. Okay. All right, buddy. Welcome to the mouthpiece. This is Mike. Hey, Mike. Um, just wanted to let you know. Uh, thanks for taking the call. Yeah, who's this? Uh, just wanted to let you know that I wanted to give you compliments over the last many months and what you've done with the podcasts and blogs. I appreciate it. Never really been a big Madison fan, but you definitely turned me around in the last couple months. Thank you so much. You know, um, a lot of people in the poker world that don't really know me, the poker world knows me. They know I'm a, a great person, a good hearted person, and. And I'm very well loved in the poker world. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people don't know me, you know, 
they just see what they see on TV and they don't they don't really understand me but and it's tough to understand me I'm I'm a little nuts you know but uh yeah right now I've uh I've tried you know I kind of like I learned from my mistakes I mean it's it sounds crazy that okay so when you're 18 to 20 you're supposed to party do drugs me I I didn't drink or do a drug till I was 31 right so then Right. Like my 31 was everybody's 20. And then I didn't really grow up. Prob- I still haven't grown up, but I've matured a lot when I, once I got in, you know, when I got sick and, and uh, the last four years of what I've been through. And it, it, it kind of changed me and made me uh, realize what's important. And uh, that's what I've done the, be- the most. And that's why I'm, I'm, I got, I'm writing a new book that, Hopefully, I'll I can get out by the first of the year, which is called um, uh, "Poker Pain and Politics: How All Three Changed Me to Become a Better Person." Uh, and that's not to say that uh, what side I'm on in politics. It's the fact that uh, because I never cared about anything but what was on the green felt, it opened me up to caring more about others, uh, wanting to make a difference in life and help people out and, and uh, whatever, which way I can, uh, with, with what I, with my platform. And so that's, uh, where the politics comes into the book. And then the pain is the four years of pain I went through. And, uh, so it's, should be a, a, a really good book, I hope. So, you know, that's uh, well, very uh, nice. I'm looking forward to it. Definitely check it out. Um, but I do agree that, you know, what you see on TVs kind of made you out to be, in lack of a better term, a villain. Right. And I think what you've done with the podcast, and I love the skits, too, mm-hmm. um, has really done well for you to personalize you and make somebody somebody that people can relate more to than somebody else's edited highlights. Yeah. I have a couple more skits uh, we're, we're getting ready to do that are going <laughs> to be really good. Uh uh, one's a poker skit. Uh, I've got a, 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 an amazing political skit that I'm putting together uh, for 2020 where kind of makes fun of both the left and the right uh, because you got you have to, you know, you could you could have your ideology or whatever, but you have to, you have to be objective. And I feel that you have to have dialogue in both ways and and try and appreciate what people are saying either way. So couldn't. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. So I appreciate the all call. Right. Well, and um, tell all your friends, listen to the podcast, and uh, and uh, I appreciate it very much. Absolutely. Thanks, Mike. You have a great night. You too, my friend. Take care. Bye. All right. Bye. The mouthpiece. Okay, everybody. So we've uh, got ourselves our first sponsor on this show. Their name is My Bookie, and uh, they're a very reputable company. They have blackjack, craps, roulette. They have all kinds of other casino games as well as tons of sports betting for all you degenerates out there. So do me a favor. You listen to the show. Go visit mybookie.ag. Put in the promo code mouthpiece. That's mybookie.ag. Promo code mouthpiece. And you get up to a 200% bonus up to $1,000. So... You spin, you win, get paid only at MyBookie. Up to a $1,000 bonus. That's MyBookie. Enter promo code 
mouthpiece. Thanks, you guys. I appreciate it. And uh, I appreciate them supporting the show. Welcome to the mouthpiece. My idol and great pitcher, Mr. Oral Hershiser. How are you doing today, sir? Doing great. Doing really good. So, um, you know, we're pretty good friends and we've talked many times. And as you know, uh, I'm like the biggest Dodger fan in the world. Um, I I think about, I ask uh, myself, what is a great thing that I really want to ask Oral? And it's during the streak of 1988, what was going through your mind as you probably heard this question a million times as the streak was, as you were going to break it. Well, the, the whole key to the streak was uh, we were struggling as an offense. So a run had a huge value. So at right. the beginning of the streak, it was about pitching well and trying to win because we were in a pennant race mm-hmm. and trying to win the division. But after the streak got going, and we still needed to win, but the offense continued to struggle. It was like, you know, even a leadoff double, I'm trying to secure that and not let that become a run. Right. As it got beyond, let's say, 35 innings, it started to get about, like, I can throw one more sinker away. I can mm-hmm. throw one more curveball in the dirt when I get ahead of somebody. You know, can my defense continue to play good defense behind me? You know, because I'm not a, I wasn't a strikeout pitcher. You know, average maybe six, seven strikeouts a game. But I was a I was a ground ball contact pitcher, and I went for the strikeout if I needed it. So mm-hmm. I had to have good defense behind me. And I had to make a lot of good pitches, and you know the last couple games is where the pressure really mounted. The pressure mounts when all of a sudden you know the media's following a little bit, and uh, you know you've got a chance to do something really special, and you've got Don Drysdale as your announcer on the team whose record you're chasing. So right. I never really thought I could break it, but I thought I could maybe throw one more scoreless inning and those continue to total up. Right. Now I, I, you know, I never actually told you this, but like growing up, my, my father and me, we, we went to the minor league, uh, AAA teams out here in Bay in, in Vegas. And we used to talk about bre- records that are modern day records that were unbreakable. And my dad used to say the most unbreakable record was Don Drysdale's 58 and two thirds scoreless innings. He says it'll never be broken. And so watching you during that streak and breaking that record and looking up, talking to my dad and said, I thought you said it could never be broken, dad. You know, it was kind of, it was, it was, it was really kind of fun to watch. Now, uh, during that streak, I, I, if I remember correctly, uh, uh, around 45, 46 innings, didn't you have where, where, where uh, somebody scored, but the umpire changed something? Like it, it was really yeah, the, kind of mirrored. First and third, and, yeah, first and third, one out in San Francisco, and uh, Brett Butler was on first and slid out of the baseline, so the runner on third was going to score on a ground ball where we didn't get a double play, but Paul Rungi was a second base umpire and he called Butler for out of the baseline on the slide. So it was an automatic double play. And I ran off the field knowing that the streak was still alive, yelling Dick Dietz revisited, Dick Dietz revisited. (laughs) Right. And very few people knew who Dick Dietz was on my team, but I did. And Tommy Lasorda and Ron Paranowski, my pitching coach knew because Dick Dietz was hit by a ball with bases loaded. No out when Drysdale streak, Correct. going and they were going to score a run and he didn't get out of the way so harry wendelstadt the home plate umpire said no get back here deep that was the ball was a strike and you got hit by it so 
his streak continued in that inning, and he got out of the jam, and it continued on. Yeah, I I, I was reading an article that 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 was talking about, and it really is really eerie if you could compare the two streaks you guys had. I mean, so many things are like like twenty years later, like almost exact. It's kind of really really eerie. So I was like, well, that's kind of interesting, you know. You know, it was just really crazy because it, you know rare rare umpire calls that are in the middle of stuff, but it just shows you how hard it is to go that far without giving up a run where you need some breaks like that and you need great defense behind you. Right now, uh, one thing that that, that uh, one stat that I was looking at that really st- stuck out to me a lot in 1988, you had 15 complete games, where last year in all of Major League Baseball there was only 17 <laughs> complete games. Now, that will wow. show you how much um, the game has changed today. Uh, and that's kind of a little bit what I want to talk to you about. Um, as far as pitching uh, 30 years, I can't believe it's 30 years ago, 30 years ago and, yeah. and watching the games today, uh, what do you find the main difference in the pitching today and uh, back then? Well, I think the the first thing that has changed is the value of the starting pitcher for the third time through the order, mm-hmm. and then that has adjusted rosters. So rosters have now changed. Where you know, my day was a five man bullpen. Now you can have an eight or nine man bullpen. So a the twelfth or thirteenth pitcher on a staff is is better in most cases. They say than the starter going a third time around the order. So you have to have more pitchers because you're probably going to pull your starter somewhere around the sixth or seventh inning. You know, if they've gone deep into the game, some starters, of course, with openers are even going shorter than that. But, you know, now we've got openers and bulk guys. But the difference between then and now is just like in poker. It's game theory. Right. The game theory has changed, and, and in poker, game theory has changed over the years, and right. the way you play against different people, and the same thing in baseball. Game theory has changed offensively as far as launch angle, and defensively as far as shifts, and defensively as far as pitching, and, and the way you formulate a pitching staff, and who should be on the mound. Right. Now, if you the thing is, is I also believe, even though, like you said, game theory has changed in poker, and we're mm-hmm. going to talk about that in a second, about your love for poker and stuff. Uh, but <laughs> the question I asked, I want to ask you is like, when I was growing up and I was being taught how to, how to hit the ball or whatever, it was my dad always used to say, you know, just ain't, try and hit the ball right through the pitcher's head. You know, that, you know, singles up the middle. It was all about singles, steal a base, bunt, get runs. Uh, now it just seems like home run or nothing. Uh, do you think it's going to ever? It's going to change uh, back because you know how, how everything sometimes goes back to how it always is. Or do you really think that this home run or bust is the way it's it's going to stay? Yeah, I think um, I think that you're always going to have these ultimate outcomes be what statistically people want. They want you know the strikeout, the walk or the home run, Mm -hmm. but I think also that's a great way to measure the game, but I think the players on the field, I think the best players have a new category where they can exceed, and I succeed. I think it's, you know, being able to be able to hit the ball in the air and hit for power, Mm -hmm. hit the gaps, but also go against the shift. So I think adjusting their spray patterns is really going to turn them into a new tool we're in the olden days. It's like, okay, defense is a conventional defense. You can go slightly to pull on the ground, slightly away in the air. 
well, the defenses have gotten more specific, so the hitters will, will adjust back. I'm not sure we'll get to the point where hitting the ball in the air has less value than hitting it on the ground. Mm -hmm. But if all of a sudden defenses adjust even more, we're watching four outfielders. Uh, You know, Tampa Bay playing with four outfielders. We've seen that with Cody Bellinger and different people. Maybe that's going to be the new shift where four outfielders becomes the norm and hitting the ball on the ground then has more value. So the, the game and the players will always shift, I think. You know, and that's another thing. I, and I, I look at these shifts and I say, uh, what, again, I, I, I remember the days where even when I played t-ball, it's like you were always, like, they always taught you how to bunt, you know, and, and you as a pitcher, you know, you always had, you were one of the yep. better hitting pitchers. But, I mean, you always had to know how to bunt. And I just don't understand when they put these shifts on, why doesn't they just, everybody just start laying a bunt down and taking their free base, you know? Uh, what's your answer to that? Well, I think I think they will. They I think will. that there yeah. has to be some theory upstairs saying, no, I don't want you to bunt, but I know our guys work on bunting, mm-hmm. but I think they're working on it for the do-or-die situations and the playoff games. I think you won't see some more attempts at beating the shift. I think you see will see more attempts at uh, beating you know the shift with a bunt because right. in a game where you have to win or you have to get a run, it's completely different than having 600 at-bats and developing a swing and approach for 600 at-bats. So it has to do with, it'd be the same thing as playing short stacked, you know, in poker mm-hmm. and you're at the final table, or are you playing deep stack in a cash game and everybody's got deep stack. So it completely changes what you'll play, what your starting cards are, just like what is your approach at the plate. So 600 at-bats swings compared to what you'll do in an at-bat because you have to win right now. It's do or die in a wild-card game or Game 7 of the NLCS or Game 7 of the World Series or a key game. I think it's completely different, and I'm watching players and management now ask guys to get ready for short stack. Yeah. Hey, that, 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 that's a great analysis and a great way to put it. Cause like, you know, even listening to a rod on the uh, broadcast last year, you know, he during the world series, he was like, yeah, you, you know, when the guy got on first, he's like, you got to bunt him to second. There's nobody out. You're down one, to nothing. This, and this is when, and when the Dodgers, we had struck out like three in a row. He's like, this was a big right. mistake. I don't, I forgot who was that bat, but I think you could probably remember. But, uh, and so I, I was thinking the same thing and, and him and, uh, Poppy were saying, we're saying, no, no, no. He goes, he, you got to move that base runner over. I don't care about the new way of, home runner bust you that you the, no matter what they yeah. say you got to get that base runner over and i and i agreed with them but uh you know those are the things well that i think I, I think mike in that situation again you know relating it back to poker because that's what we yes. both know and it's kind of common ground other than love for the dodgers but right. it's also then playing the player right if it's a guy on the mound that it's really hard to hit a home run off of and right. he's, he's really mowing people down and he's striking people out, then mm-hmm. maybe the bunt and sacrificing an out in that situation because it's going to be easier to get a single off of him and easier to score the guy from second. So maybe the bunt should have been in order because that's the player you're playing against. Right. You know, I mean, compared to like in poker, playing the player, not playing the situation. Absolutely. So, you know, you how long have you, you got into poker, what, about 15 years ago, 10 years ago? Yeah, it was it was the big boom. It was the big boom when you know party poker was going on, and you know money maker won, and all of a sudden it was on the internet, and it was like I'm on road trips and I'm bored and I need a new kind of thing to concentrate. I always like to have a hobby that challenges me. Right. So, 
it was, uh, it, and I started dating my wife, and uh, she lived in Vegas, so I would come in here and be a fish and, and lose all kinds of money when but, I would come in to date But you're her. not a fish no more. And, and I'm like, I'm either going to give up this game or I'm going to take some lessons. And uh, I watched some poker videos, and up springs this guy that was an ex-teacher, a mm-hmm. history teacher that turned professional poker player. So I'm like, all right, ex-teacher, this is good. Yeah. He starts talking, and I like the way he talks. And I say, I can get along with him. He's kind of cut of the same fabric as me. Right. And it get, lo and behold, it was Mark Gregorich. Yeah. And I went up to Mark Gregorich in the Bellagio, where I was losing a lot of money. And uh, I said, Mark, I'd love to have a conversation with you. And he goes, that's fine. And I introduced myself, and we went and had a glass of wine, and that night he was playing in a softball game, and I, and he had never hit a home run, and I said, do you mind doing your batting stance here in the middle of the Bellagio, and he didn't. I adjusted his grip and his stance, and he had a home run that night, and we've been best friends ever since, yeah. and he's given me a lot of poker lessons. Mark's Mark's an amazing <laughs> Introduced guy. Introduced me to nice people like you. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, hey, the first time I met you, you let me wear your World Series ring, and I'll never forget it. It's like, I tell people yeah. all the time, what's a, like, like in sports, what's one of your highlights of your life? I say, I think the number uh, one highlight is what Oral let me wear is, um, his world series <laughs> ring. Cause Come on, you, Mike. you don't, you, you don't understand what a diehard Dodger fan I am. There's like you people that are put the uh, world series bracelet on. Well, yeah, <laughs> sure. Whichever one you want, man. That'll be, that'll I'll be let you, highlight. I'll let you wear my, uh, my NBC head up ring. That was, that was pretty good too. You know, so yeah, I like that. Since I played in that tournament, I'd like to wear that ring. That was, yeah, that was a, so, you know, I was, I was wondering, you know, like in 1989, after, after the big year you had, you actually had basically the statistically wise, the exact same season. I mean, you had the same amount of strikeouts. The ERA was the same. Yet you guys went, you went 15 and 15 that year instead of 23 and eight the year before. Is that was because the offense yeah. was struggling so much? Yeah, it was. I actually thought I had a better year consistently in '89 compared to '88 because '89 didn't have 59 scoreless. So I think my ERA was like .3 higher. Yeah, it was. And the innings were close, and the strikeouts are close. And I'm like, okay, without 59 scoreless, my ERA is really in a better place. But uh, I shot. I think you know, Cy Young wise, I think uh, a reliever won it. Davis from San Diego won it that year. And I went like fifth. I was fifteen and ten going into September, and and the joke in our clubhouse on during my starts was that my team was trying to break my scoreless record. <laughs> so <laughs> our offense wasn't real good. So I think I did go like zero and five with like a one two or some crazy ERA <laughs> in September. You did and, um uh, like the pitcher from the um, Mets last year. What's it? <laughs> Hey. Yeah, I mean, I, if, if sabermetrics would have been in, I might have, I might have won another Cy Young, but through the statistics and the war and all the other peripheral stuff. So it was a good year. It was just a tough year for our team and a tough year for us offensively. You got to remember the year before yeah. we win the world championship. Our MVP, Kirk Gibson, I think he didn't have 90 RBIs. No. And- so and Strawberry had like 110 and didn't win the MVP. Gibson did yeah. because of his impact on our team, which he deserved, but. It wasn't a big offensive team. It was a pitching and defense and right. park team. And if I'm not mistaken, I mean, like Mick, Mickey Hatcher, like went off in the in the postseason. Like, oh, had, like he could have been the World Series MVP instead of me. That's I what mean, I thought. Yeah, I, th- he, I, I, I he thought met Mickey was... Mantle at a restaurant in New York when we were playing the Mets, and mm-hmm. he goes, Mickey Mantle says to a guy who's hit like five home runs the whole year, he goes, "Look, it, you can't be called Mickey and not hit home runs." So Mickey. Goes gets into the game a few more times than normal in the regular season because we've had some injuries, and he's hitting home runs in the World Series. I think he hit three 
and he had five like all year. Yeah, it was, it's like it was incredible, inspirational stuff from Mickey Mantle. <laughs> so, uh, touching a little bit off on baseball, a little bit. So we we know this is the year of the home run, and I know it has a lot to do with the changing of the baseball. Um, we talked a few years mm-hmm. back uh, about like uh, when they got rid of PEDs, and we also talked a little bit about how a lot of players that didn't do PEDs, they did greenies. They were, you know, because it was like so hard for these batters day in and day out to 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 um, basically produce. And now all of a sudden they changed the baseball, and people are and now the year of the home run is back. Um, comparing. I, I bring that up because comparing, let's just say, what I, I believe, as much as I, being a Dodger fan, I hated Barry Bonds. I hated his guts, but I, I also <laughs> feel like he was really treated unfairly by not being in the Hall of Fame. You know as well as I do, uh, until he did take PEDs from 80, 86 through 98, this guy was the best hitter and best hitter I'd ever seen that before then. So what do you believe that Barry Bonds should be in the Hall of Fame? You know, it's a it's a yes no question. I think it's an overall baseball question. That if if they've proven stuff and it was against the rules, then they can decide that. I'm not a voter, right? I I think the Hall of Fame is not heaven, mm-hmm. so I think baseball has to decide at what point are we looking at, you know, rules were broken, you can't get in the Hall of Fame, or rules have changed and it's okay. Exactly. So I I I really have a tough time now. I as a player. I was disgusted by it and fought behind the scenes to get PEDs and greenies and everything else, but mm-hmm. I wasn't going to blow up our game. I was fighting right. behind the scenes. I wasn't like in Seiko. I wasn't going to come out and write a book. Right. Because also you have team teammates that are dabbling of in that course. and you know it. So where is the fair field if you're going to you know, say, hey, these five teammates are breaking the rules and these guys over here on the opposing team and I'm getting – you know, lambasted out here with my concave chest and no muscles. And so, you know, you don't, you don't know really where to go other than go to the powers that be and fight behind the scenes. I think it's good that the game got cleaned up. And if, and if the powers that be now want more offense, uh, they're getting it from the players with the launch angle. They're getting it with, you know, adjusting the baseball and making sure the, the core of the baseball is in dead center. They lowered the seams maybe a little bit and made it more aerodynamic. And I think we're definitely seeing the uptick in the home runs because of the baseball. It's not because of what's going on with the players. Of course, and so that's what I'm. That was the point I'm trying to get against. If you're see, because yeah. I remember, I remember 1990 when Jose Canseco was dating Madonna. The fans were throwing like needles at. <laughs> they were throwing needles at him in the outfield, going steroids, oh steroids. So yeah. everybody knew that what was going on. Baseball knew what was going on. And because of the big home run chase of 1998 between Sosa and McGuire, uh, it, it took baseball from, you know, from the strike of 94 or 93, whatever it was, uh, to, to new heights. And then all of a sudden they wanted to destroy the people that brought baseball back to new heights. And I just feel if now that they're changed, they've changed the bait. What's the difference between the guys playing that, that did the PEDs or greenies or whatever. And like, it's well known that Babe Ruth even yeah. did greenies back in the day. Uh, that uh, now you have a different baseball, and the and now the records are going to be broke. See what I'm trying to say? There's a there's a real tough. I know exactly. I know exactly what you're saying, but I'm going to go next level with you okay. and just say you're, it's apples and oranges, but they're both fruit and they right. both taste different. So right. 
So it's like I understand why you're in the flavor range mm-hmm. and you're you've got the flavor of the of the thing, but it's going to be really hard to then start dissecting generations and problems in the game and saying, okay, all of a sudden. So maybe the bottom line of your argument might be that just go by stats. The right. game has problems. The game has differences from every generation to generation. Uh, there were probably people doing steroids prior to the steroid rules coming in. Absolutely. That, that benefited and there are probably even people prior than that generation that were probably doing it or doing something out of the ordinary that 100%. the league didn't either care about or the league didn't know about correct you know scuffing the baseball throwing the spitter uh the strike zone was different for certain pitchers because they tipped umpires uh ownership took care of people you know who knew you know every generation has its issues and maybe the ultimate logical as you spiral it back down would be just go by stats I agree. Now, one, I'm going to ask you one other question. Then but gonna... the problem with stats, Mike, is there's a problem with stats, you know, mm-hmm. because the strike zone has changed, the ballparks have changed, the ball has changed, the, everything has changed. So it's like, then do you go stats by generation? And right. then how do you separate generations? I mean, and, this is like Pandora's box. Correct. <laughs> and, and that's why when you just brought up a good point, that was going to be my next question. The strike zone has changed. Okay. There's rule. Yep. The, the, the rules are a strike is from the knees to the letters. And over the corner of the base. Am I correct? Am I? That's correct. That's the rules, right? I haven't read the strike zone rule in oh. so many years. Because okay, I just that, go that's by actually considered the rule. <laughs> so, would you? Are you somebody that would be for keeping your umpire behind the plate because for calls at the plate or whatever, but going with computerized a computerized uh, uh, strike zone? Yeah, the whole key to the computerized strike zone, which I am now for, but I am for. Because I want it to be consistent and the fan has immediate information mm-hmm. and so that it should be immediately accurate. So I think it's unfair to the fan to see a ball called a ball and it really registered as a strike and it's unfair the other way too. You know, we take a minute and a half to two and a half minutes to get a call right on the field. Right. Uh, and now we could, we could get a call right with the strike zone in a quarter of a second. Correct. I mean, now. So, I, the problem I have is you have to be able to adjust the strike zone for Aaron Judge compared to El Tuve. Right. You've got to be able to adjust the strike zone. Unless you say the game in the game that the strike zone is this big and this is how big it is no matter how tall you are or no matter how what kind of batting stance you take. You could say as a game, this is the strike zone. Right. So It but- is another way of adjusting ballparks. You could give a bigger strike zone in Colorado electronically and a smaller strike zone in pitchers parks Mm -hmm. and you could adjust. So there's so many ways, as you know, and as we play again, back to poker, you know, mixed games and all the different rules you can play. Mm -hmm. You can, you can do anything you want with baseball or like they do in football or like they do in, in basketball, the three point line and everything that, you know, three seconds and the widening of the lane and everything. So games can be adjusted. Well, see, so this is, this is my idea and tell me what you think of it. Okay. Because everybody, like you said, the Aaron judges are bigger. If the strike zone is knees to the letters and over the middle of the plate, if they just put everybody's baseball's measurements, okay, into the computer. So when they come up, they're going to know exactly the, the, where, where their knees are, where 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 the uh, letters are, and then mm-hmm. th- they know where the strike is. Now, I also say you could go with keeping it just like it is, and I think this is my, the, the best idea is 
going with it. Each player gets three challenges per game, kind of like tennis. The tennis people in tennis love the replay that where they zero in. It takes them a half a second to see if the ball was in or out. Um, so if the guy, instead of arguing the ball strikes, that, that player gets three arguments per game or three challenges per game. It takes a quarter of a second to see if it's a ball or a strike. And everybody's measurements are in the computer. And th- now nobody will have to worry about arguing balls or strikes. Do you, you like that idea? That's a new and different idea. And I'm kind of smiling as you said it. I'm yeah. wondering if it should be the player or the manager that has immediate information too, like in key situations. So it's almost like the challenge when they say they're going to challenge the play on the field, mm-hmm. they can challenge the strike zone. But again, it comes down to me going back to the beginning would be the strike sound being accurate first. And right. so my first, I, I was a non-electronic strike zone person about two years ago mm-hmm. because the players kept coming to me and saying, you better watch it when you're announcing the game because that ball is still three inches off the plate and it shows a strike. But the technology was off. The vibration of the cameras, the resetting of the cameras and getting the technology accurate on a nightly basis was off. They've gotten rid of that. I've I haven't heard right. a gripe from a player in about a year and a half on that that the strike zone showed ball and it was really a strike. They have not griped once. So I know the technology and the position of the cameras, the vibration of the cameras, the cameras being set accurately every night yeah. have, have really improved. But we also have to get what you said about the height and getting a guy registered. Mm-hmm. Or is there one consistent strike zone for everybody? But it's very interesting that you say about the challenges. Is that would be a slower way of adjusting to the electronic Yeah, and it's so zone. popular in tennis. You know, like when, when the guy yeah. raises his hand, and then that means a challenge. And then in less than a, like, the, then the fans all start clapping, waiting for it to come up on the big screen. It comes up as a big screen, as is a strike, and it's overturned or vice versa. And uh, and everybody, the fans will go crazy. And I just think it's, you know, it's just the perfect idea uh, to yeah. put that into the baseball. The interesting thing is everybody, you know, number of challenges, you start thinking about free throw player might be too long. But yeah. if it can come back in like a quarter of a second, like you said, it would yeah. just kind of come up on the scoreboard the opposite way the umpire called it. Right. But I think if you limited the challenges, then all of a sudden you're lengthening the part of the game that really makes it long and at right. times gets a little arduous, which is the last three innings. Because people would save their challenges for the seventh, eighth, and ninth when it was the biggest moment. Which is fine. Play. That's kind of like what they do in the in tennis. They, they they'll they'll save yeah. it for late in the they set. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Or or, or uh, so that you know that's fine, but it, it you know it wouldn't it wouldn't it just wouldn't be hard to measure every per- baseball player's uh, knees to the letter. They'll know exactly where each player's strike zone is because of when they get in the box because the computers will have all that. So exactly, that was my idea. So, anyways, well, I, wanted, I like it. I want to talk about that. So now we we look back uh, with the playoffs coming up. Okay, we we know that. Uh, we, we ask ourselves, will this be the Dodger year? And what is your opinion in the, in, the, in the day of the home run where you still have basically three pitchers, well, two for sure, that are completely dominating like a 36-year-old Verlander or Cole with uh, Houston mm. and even our, uh, Clayton Kershaw is still pitching great. So what's your opinion? Well, I think, I think in the playoffs, you know, again, related back to paper, mm-hmm. I, I think it's more like final table play compared to early play. I think early play is the regular season, and I think final table play is the, mm-hmm. kind of the playoffs. Can the best players win in the playoffs? Yes. 
can a, a non-dominant player win at the final table? Yes, yes, because he gets all of a sudden gets good cards, and who gets hot? So the short the shorter stints relate to a starting pitcher getting hot or two starting pitchers getting hot, mm-hmm. maybe two or three two or three relievers getting hot, and then you don't even need an offense to get hot. Then you might be able to get through it with a uh, you know. Well, a couple of couple of key hits here and there, and yeah. all of a sudden you're winning these short series. But there's no way you would win a whole season with that. And and and, and the reason why I ask is like, is also because like I I I'm because the Dodgers I, lost the last two World well, Series. That's why you asked. that. And I want to know. I want <laughs> okay. I I mean I don't want to get ahead of myself, but. I, I um, well, you, you know, better get ahead of yourself because I got to go to the ballpark okay. and, and you, announce the game. I got two minutes. Uh, I'm gonna get, we're gonna get this over with. Uh, you got two you, minutes left. Way to go! You got it. Um, so um, <laughs> bottom of the ninth. <laughs> bottom of the ninth. <laughs> what? Uh, I don't think there's a threat to us, the Dodgers in the National League. I, I we talked a, a uh-huh. couple weeks ago in L.A., Washington, but they've fallen off. They seem like they're back to their early season struggles with their with everything. But you know, who knows what's going to happen? Yeah. Um, I really think I don't. I mean, I might be wrong, but it's. I looking, think on pay, I think on paper you're right, but we still got to go play the game. Exactly. You I know? mean, I'm looking like the Dodgers in Houston. Um, if it ends up the Dodgers in Houston, do you think? The, yep. We have what it takes to to win it against them. We definitely we definitely have what it takes to win it. But if you if I was announcing in another city, I'd probably say we definitely have what it takes to win in that city. And I think that's how close the playoff races are. Right. And I think that's what the Dodgers have really worked on all year. They have worked on the edges of the game. They've worked on the situational hitting, which they're much better. They're two yes. out two out two strike hitting uh, with runners in scoring position is improved. There's a lot of those peripheral edgy numbers their defense their defensive accuracy in the shifts and what they're doing and so they are really working hard on finding those edges all through the out the regular season even though in the regular season they could probably overpower people and mm-hmm. not concentrate on that stuff they've concentrated on it to get ready for october and, and i and i've noticed that too um and the one last question i got for you is yeah buddy Kelly Jansen's been really struggling. Is that do you feel like yep. that might be of something that could hurt us in the playoffs or does is, is the manager prepared to go a different direction if he keeps struggling? Yeah, I think that if Kenley was the ultimate closer on our team right now and that's the way they were going to go no matter what uh, and he was struggling, I think it would could be an Achilles heel. Mm-hmm. But I think over the last month or so, the team has prepared for Kenley to be part of the bullpen mm-hmm. and not necessarily the closer. Okay. I think he will get closing situations when the matchups are correct. But I think it's going to be more of a matchup bullpen in the playoffs than it is going to be a bullpen that has a closer and everybody else sets up for him. Right. I think and- they really... I think Kenley is at a place where he believes that that's okay. I think that the talent they're going to put down there, if it's a Dustin May, a Gonsolin, a Maeda, a Rios, a Stripling, all Baez, Kelly, all of them, I think you're going to see a staff down there. And I think that's going to really help give them an edge that that's going to remove that Achilles heel. 
I, you know, I felt the same way as far as our, our late relief. I feel like we have enough players that have been like fourth and fifth starters that they might end up throwing into the bullpen. And we, we have a, a big three and just like Houston does. So uh, it's going to be fun. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. And I'm, I'm kind of looking forward it's gonna to be, it. It's going to be, it's either going to make you really happy or depressed. I know. Oh, it's so gonna, we're same, just gonna have same with you, buddy. Don't it's going to make it you. Don't let it affect your poker. Do don't, not let it affect your poker. Oh, I won't, but I'm looking forward <laughs> Influence. <laughs> I'm looking forward to going to the World Series and seeing you there and hopefully getting there. Right, uh, and I appreciate uh, the interview. I um, have text a great me, one. Text me when you're playing poker. Let me know where you're at. There's yeah, see, so find my fishy ass. All right, let me know when you're playing. I'll come I'll come hang out with you and have a drink. Play some poker. All right, bud. See Later. you. Take care. Bye. The mouthpiece. Okay, everyone. I hope you enjoyed our show today with Baseball legend, Dodger legend pitcher, Mr. Oral Hershiser. And we will be back next week for episode 21 with another special guest. So the one thing I have to say, as far as I go, and I know as far as Oral Hershiser goes, it's go Dodgers for the next month. And let's bring home that world championship. I'll see you all next week on the mouthpiece.